Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Alok Karana, who is the director of the Gastrointestinal Malignancies Program at Cleveland Clinic and is now the vice chair for career and academic development. So welcome, Alok. Thanks, Dale. Glad to be on. So maybe to start, just give us a little background on what you do here at the clinic. So I run the GI cancer program, as you know, GI cancer is a, a lot of different cancers sort of sandwiched into one um, one large disease group. So we, we take care of patients with esophageal cancer and gastric cancer and hepatobiliary cancers, colorectal and anal cancers. So it's great because I get to work with a bunch of different uh, surgical groups. And it's been some exciting changes at GI cancers in the past uh, year or so. Sure. Well, I guess that's what we're going to be talking about here today. So as most people are aware, the, the ASCO annual meeting took place in a virtual setting due to the COVID-19 pandemic. What were your thoughts on that? How, how did that go for you being virtual? I liked it and I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the parts I liked was it really, the access was very easy. It's a great way to get to all the presentations right away, to get into all the slides right away. And if you follow, you know, many people on, on social media, especially Twitter, where a lot of medical professionals seem to be these days, um, it was also great to follow along uh, to people's reactions as they were listening to, you know, this new data coming out. If you have challenges accessing ASCO, you know, because of, you know, you're in a small practice and you don't have somebody covering for you, or if you have, you know, if you're a parent with young children, you know, whatever the cause may be, I think for all of those people, people who live in low and middle income countries outside of the United States, I think this type of access is fantastic. Uh, and I, I think that's the part that should be kept. What I missed, of course, was the real-time networking. Much of science, as you know, Dale, is advanced, you know, not by sort of one lone ranger, but but by team science. And teams these days are not restricted to one institution. You know, you, you work with people across different institutions and across countries and often across continents. And ASCO is one place where you can get to meet many of these people and, and plan your year out. And, and that's definitely something that was missed um, being able to have those real face-to-face connections. Yeah, that part's hard. I mean, I, people tried to to sort of replicate that a little bit with Twitter, and but, you know, sort of walking out of the room and saying, hey, what did you think about that, and bouncing off ideas, and even maybe coming up with the next steps uh, was, was missed. Exactly. So thinking back to the meeting, what were some of the, the top studies that were presented this year in, in GI cancers? So it's been... Uh, Fair, I would say it's been a banner year for GI cancers, sort of broadly. It's been a long time coming. You know, we've been watching the lung cancer guys and, and, and the melanoma people soak up all the attention. And it's, it's about time that our patients with, with different GI cancers uh, got to share in some of the exciting new developments. And I think that year was finally this year at ASCO. Uh, obviously, sort of the top, top billing goes to the, the Keynote 177 study which looked at a very important population in GI cancers, which is first-line treatment of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. And as you know, Dale, for, for years, we've been treating these patients with either full FOX or full FERI, probably full FOX for most, most physicians is a choice. And then we sometimes combine it with, with either with bevacizumab or in patients with RAS, uh, wild type with, uh, with cetuximab or penetumumab. 
this year's ASCO, the Keynote 177 study, looked at doing upfront immunotherapy. We've been using immunotherapy now in the second and higher line setting in colorectal cancer uh, for patients with, with microsatellite instability. So these are mismatch repair deficient patients. Uh, and we've seen some good successes in, in, in that population. And so this study is asking the question, do we have to wait till second line or can we just start patients off first line with an immunotherapy drug? And in this specific trial, it was pembrolizumab uh, upfront. Uh, and there's no question if you look at sort of the primary endpoint that pembrolizumab did fantastically well. Median progression-free survival was 16 plus months, 16 and a half months, I think, for patients uh, randomized to the pembro arm compared to about eight months who received standard chemotherapy, which was basically investigator's choice. There's a bunch of different regimens that were allowed. And it's hard to think of another study where you see an eight-month absolute increase in progression-free survival. So, so that's that's definitely a very exciting uh, new development. And I think based on the findings of this study, I would say for most patients with MSI high metastatic colorectal cancer, it makes sense to start with immunotherapy. You spare a lot of people from going on chemotherapy for a long period of time. Generally speaking, patients do well. The adverse effects are, you certainly you don't get the neuropathy, for instance, that you would get with, uh, with whole fox. And uh, Mike Overman had the commentary on, on it at the plenary session, and he said this sets a new standard of care. And I, I think most of us in the GI cancer community would agree with that. I think this is the new standard of care for MSI high patients with metastatic colorectal cancer for slime setting. So I guess programmatically, what does that look like in terms of when we do genomic testing or specifically look for patients with MSI high tumors? So this has, you know, this I think pushes the need to do genomic testing as early as possible. You know, here at the Cleveland Clinic, we've been you know, screening for uh, MSI, more for the Lynch syndrome aspect of it, so more to identify patients who are at hereditary risk of colorectal cancer. And we push screening, and now it's the national standard is to screen any biopsy of, of, of a colon cancer or resection of a colon cancer should undergo MSI testing. Um, and I think that remains true for identifying patients with Lynch syndrome, but now it's even more important from a treatment standpoint and for patients who undergo surgery or who have a prior biopsy, I think it should be default to do MSI testing right away because that, that's definitely a decision that needs to be made sooner than later. And do you, uh, do you see that being the case, not only at academic centers, but do you see that happening out in the community? And, and if not, how do we spread that word? I think it needs to happen in the community. Um, I think, you know, most change in, in a large setting like this, you know, colorectal cancer is a big public health problem. And most change in a large setting like this has to be systematic change. You know, it can be individual docs reminding individual pathologists to make sure that they do an MSI test. I think most hospitals have to say, this is really important for patients, both to identify Lynch syndrome and to identify those who would respond to immunotherapy. Um, so as soon as we get a sample for colon or rectal cancer, let's do MSI testing. I, I think systems have to be set up for this to function, you know, to the best interest of our patients. I mean, just thinking back to how long it took for people to start doing extended RAS testing, it's going to be important to jump on this pretty early, it seems. I think the good news is the MSI data has been out for a while, and people are at least used to doing MSI testing at some point and making sure that, you know, patients who qualify for immunotherapy receive those drugs at, uh, at least in the second line or higher setting. I think now it's more the, you don't have the luxury of waiting a month or two months to get those results back. You've got to 
get it back in, in real time so you can start the patient on, on appropriate treatment. I do, you know, want to make one sort of cautionary note because there's a lot of good news in this in the results of this trial, but it's important to note that there were some patients who progressed fairly quickly, and that's about between 20 and 30 percent of patients at their first scan were progressing, uh, and this is not true for the patients who were receiving chemotherapy. So, so I think there's even within the MSI high population. There's a minority of patients who, for whatever reason, don't respond to single-agent immunotherapy. Uh, and whether they should be treated with a you know, combination of immunotherapy plus chemotherapy or whether they should receive doublet immunotherapy, I think these are questions uh, for the future. Thankfully, not for the majority of patients who, who did very well. But you know, if you're going to start somebody on first-line pembrolizumab, I would caution you, make sure that we are checking for progression fairly early in the course and don't just assume that because it's MSI high and because it's Pembro, everybody's going to do fantastically well. There's a subset of patients who don't, and it's important to catch that population that's progressing quickly and switch switch over very quickly back to or to chemotherapy. That's certainly good guidance. How, how about other trials that uh, captured your interest at uh, ASCO? So on the theme of you know colon and rectal cancers, the treatment paradigm for rectal cancer is undergoing a, a transformation, the likes of which we have not seen in the past two decades, driven primarily by moving the adjuvant therapy to the new adjuvant setting. Uh, and we've seen this, this coming for a few years now. You know, we've seen data that if you move up full box before resection, then you know, people tolerate it better and they're more likely to get to surgery and they're more likely to have a sort of a better response to surgery, more more complete resection at surgery. And and we didn't have randomized trials data to support that uh, previously. And I think, I, I don't wanna get into sort of each abstract detail here because there were actually several abstracts that addressed this. But I think broadly the theme that I would take, the more neoadjuvant therapy we give in rectal cancer, it appears to be better for patients. And as a consequence of doing more neoadjuvant therapy, you're more likely to see complete responses, complete pathologic responses for rectal cancer. And many patients may be spared the need for uh, for a resection if you get to a complete response. So to clarify what I'm talking about, we're talking about what's called now known as total neoadjuvant therapy, TNT approach to rectal cancer. And it's changing our standard sequence from neoadjuvant chemoradiation, uh, followed by surgery, followed by four months of adjuvant therapy. That's been the standard for years and years and years. And it's moving up the post-operative chemotherapy to upfront chemotherapy. So starting with chemoradiation or chemotherapy, and then switching over to the opposite. So if you started with chemoradiation, go to chemo. If you started with chemo, go to chemoradiation. But finish up everything you're going to do non-surgically before you actually get to surgery. So that's the broad approach known as total neoadjuvant therapy. And I think the advantages are clear. You you know, you get in more of your treatment. I think patient adherence and compliance is better. And the chance of pathologic complete response is greater. And then the second aspect of this is about 20, maybe 30% of patients will have a complete response. And if you have a complete response, have a discussion with the patient about the safety of not doing an operation. So what's called watch and wait or surveillance approach, where you monitor very carefully and then only do a a resection known as a salvage resection if there's local recurrence at some point uh, in the future. And that's a massive paradigm shift. It's moving, you know, 
patients towards sort of what's the anal cancer paradigm, give your treatment, get a response, uh, and then see what happens, as opposed to what used to be the colon paradigm, which is do the surgery and then treat, treat afterwards. So surgery has been such a fundamental part of the treatment of this disease for so many years. Do, do you think the biggest uh, driver for change will be the patient comfort with eliminating surgery or getting surgeons buy-in to, to not do that operative procedure? I think here at the Cleveland Clinic, I would say the surgeons have been the ones driving this. You know, the surgical group started the OPRA trial, which was presented at ASCO. Uh, we were part of the OPRA trial, which looked at chemo radiation followed by chemo versus chemo followed by chemo radiation. And so several large uh, academic medical centers participated in OPRA. So I think broadly speaking, across the colorectal cancer surgical community, there is now familiarity with the total neoadjuvant therapy approach and the watch and wait approach. So I don't think this is a shock to most colorectal surgeons. And I think colorectal surgeons want to do the right thing by their patient. They don't want to give them, you know, a stoma or uh, or do a resection if it's not necessary. Um, so I would say, broadly speaking, I see a, a great deal of support for uh, for this approach. But but it is important that our surgical colleagues be very closely involved, even if they don't do an operation, because you know following these patients closely for local recurrence is really really important. You don't want to you know, do your treatment, send the patient on their way, and then nobody looks 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 at the rectum for another year or two years, and then misses misses a local recurrence. Uh, I, I think you know the old paradigm had a very high success rate in terms of curing the cancer. These are curable patients, and so any new paradigm has to achieve that level of success for long-term adoption. So we definitely want to keep our surgical colleagues involved in doing you know repeated endoscopies and monitoring by MRI and and rectal exams and so on. Uh, for several years after after completion of this uh, new adjuvant approach. Are there any particular trials which were uh, primarily conducted here at Cleveland Clinic that you'd like to highlight that were discussed at uh, ASCO? You know, so I talked about OPRA, which is the new adjuvant uh, rectal cancer trial, another trial that, you know, received a lot of attention leading up to ASCO, but was not practice changing, I would say, at ASCO, is the SWAP 1505, which is the trial of new adjuvant approach to resectable pancreas cancer. One of the things you're seeing in GI cancer, just broadly as a theme, is that you know, we are moving more towards neoadjuvant approaches across the board. You know, we do neoadjuvant esophageal, neoadjuvant gastric, neoadjuvant rectal, as we just discussed, and it may be time to go down that route for pancreatic cancer as well. So the SWOC 1505 was a trial with uh, our former colleague here at the Cleveland Clinic, Devinder Sohal, as, as, as the national co-PI. And the consideration here was that for patients with pancreatic cancer, even resectable pancreatic cancer, the rates of recurrence are very, very, very high. You know, we think of Whipple resection as being a curative procedure. But broadly speaking, 70 to 80% of Whipple resections uh, patients who undergo vehicle resections have a recurrence. Uh, so it's not, you know, curative for the majority of patients. And can we improve those cure rates? Uh, and so that's the question that was being asked by SWAP 1505, which looked at two different systemic therapy regimens, uh, GEM, cytobine, and napaclitaxel, and versus fulfirinox. So randomized trial, patients with resectable, so these are not borderline resectable, not locally advanced, not metastatic purely resectable pancreatic cancer patients, randomized to either gem or fulfirinox for a couple of months and then go on to receiving uh, surgery. And 
the goal was to find a regimen that had sort of a higher response rate, and hopefully that would lead to a larger trial of uh, of a neoadjuvant approach in in this particular setting. Uh, you know, it, it depends on if you're sort of a glass half full, half empty person. You know, half empty would be that really both of these uh, regimens did okay in terms of response rates, in terms of R0 resection. You know, there's there's some numerically higher or lower numbers on each side of those of the randomization, but nothing to write home about. The glass half full version would be it makes me more comfortable prescribing gem netpaclitaxel in the new adjuvant setting. Uh, you know, so far we've thought that only fulfrinox is going to be helpful in the setting, but looks like response rates and R0 resection rates were very similar, whether you use gem netpaclitaxel upfront or fulfrinox upfront. And I know a lot of my pancreatic cancer patients are just not good, great candidates for fulfrinox, and so I feel now more comfortable being able to use gem netpaclitaxel uh, in the setting. Yeah, that's certainly reassuring. Yeah, you know, not did not, you know, didn't meet sort of their cutoff of what what they wanted for uh, response rates uh, compared to historical rates of I think forty percent was their cutoff, um, and that's you know that's the trouble with the historical comparison is that things change all the time, and so it's not practice changing, but I think in general it supports the ongoing movement towards new adjuvant therapy in pancreatic cancer, whether it's for, you know, resectable, borderline resectable, locally advanced. And I think provide some reassuring, as you said, Dale, um, that gemnap is, is a decent regimen in this setting. So I think one of my frustrations in, in GI cancers is always the apparent lack of progress in late stage disease and, and metastatic uh, disease. And I guess uh, the, my next question would be, what do you see as the, the gaps in GI cancers and how do we close those gaps? Well, there's still a lot of gaps to close, no question about it. Uh, I, I think exploring the role of um, immunotherapy, you know, we are still stuck in the, for, for most GI cancers, we're still stuck in the MSI high zone, uh, which is maybe 5% of all GI cancers. In some, like pancreatic cancer, MSI high is less than 1% of pancreatic cancers. So I would love to be able to use more immunotherapy um, and so far, we can't, can't seem to expand past sort of this niche population of, of, of um, microsatellite unstable uh, cancers. There's a lot of approaches right now to trying to change that. One is to combine immunotherapy, you know, like in a doublet fashion, but more interestingly, it's to combine immunotherapy with, with uh, drugs like regorafenib uh, and lenvatinib. We saw some evidence of that approach uh, being successful in the liver cancer. Uh, a study combining lenvatinib with, uh, with immunotherapy in the first-line setting was actually very successful. Uh, there are similar studies ongoing with uh, regorafenib and ivolumab in, in, in colorectal cancer, for instance, and early data out from Japan suggests that this may be a successful approach even in microsatellite-stable uh, patients. So I'm really hoping and keeping my fingers crossed that we can expand the population of GI cancer patients who respond to immunotherapy by utilizing some of these more more novel uh, approaches. I appreciate your insights today. It's a, it's a good overview and a lot of good insights. So any additional comments? You know, I urge all, all, all your listeners to, you know, the way we make advances in, in cancer is by 
putting people on clinical trials. So we have a great referral base out there that sends uh, sends us patients, uh, and we we love serving those patients by getting them drugs that are not available outside of a clinical trial. So please please keep doing that. All right. Well, thank you very much, Alok. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.